Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this time that you have prepared in eternity past for us to meet with you today, to fellowship with each other in your presence, and to set our heart and our attention and our intellect upon, Lord, the thing that you have made it chiefly for, namely the revelation of Jesus Christ, God incarnate in the flesh, and his holy word. I pray now that as we, Lord, in our hearing, take in bits and pieces, Lord, as it were, and a few themes that you had knit it together, Lord, with that which has been read this year, and that over these years and as this day, Lord, represents, it would be an installment into the beautiful picture of writing your scriptures on the table of our hearts, that we might better glorify you, Lord, in our thoughts and our meditations and our profession. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. This morning, January 4th, 2015, the first service, first Sunday of the year has become a habit here at Providence to challenge ourselves to stay connected to the Word of God and to embrace it with some diligence and discipline. Indeed, to read through the Bible in the year if you feel that charge striking a chord with you, I'd encourage you to do exactly that. And I trust that at the end of 2015, you might have a logbook of your spiritual experience that would include some aspects and details similar to what Stanley shared with us. That was very encouraging. This morning, to further whet your appetite for the Scriptures, I'd like to touch on a theme that is second in a series of two sermons that I mentioned last week, and that theme is the condescension of the glorified Christ. Again, the condescension of the glorified Christ. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. While you're turning there, in a moment I'll ask you to stand. While you're turning there, let me explain to you what condescension means again. Last week we mentioned this. Let me mention it again. It's a theological term. Condescension means making oneself low. It means the stooping, the coming down of God to present himself tangible. That means in a physical way or in an interactive way. Also knowable. God presenting himself in a way that we can know him, understand him to at least some degree, and accessible, God presenting himself accessible to us in spite of the creature-creator distinction, in spite of the fact that God is infinite, eternal, and mortal, and visible, and holy, he makes himself knowable to us, mere finite, contingent, derived creatures with a shelf life, with a short lifespan. And in spite also, not just of the creature-creator distinction, but also in spite of our human depravity and sin, we forever justly separated from the fellowship of God and His holy presence because of Christ's condescension have a way of reconciliation with the Father. That's what condescension means. Now Christ, at the close of His work here on earth, was elevated resurrected and then glorified and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, receiving all of his rewards now in time for his great suffering, ruling and reigning as king and judge, as prophet and priest of all the elect, and as the powerful potentate of the universe, he is there seated exalted, in shining in resplendent glory eternally. And yet this glorified, majestic, Kingly Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father, still, even today, 
even this morning, condescends to us. That is a glorious thought. And I hope through the pages of Scripture we appreciate it at greater depth today. So stand with me if you would. And let us read the Scriptures together. In Philippians chapter 2, we'll read verses 6 through 13. Philippians 2, verses 6 through 13. Who though, speaking of Christ, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more even in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Last week we mentioned that these verses that I've just read, stopping short at verse 11, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, has come to be traditionally known as the Carmen Christi, which is Latin for him to Christ. It's recorded in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, and in that immediate context, we have declared, as we mentioned, three aspects, essential aspects of the doctrine of Jesus Christ or Christology. There is, number one, his eternal sonship. That is the glory that he shared eternally before he was incarnate, before he was born a babe in a manger. It says again, verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This brief phrase indicates that Christ was co-equal with the Father. He was God the Son eternal. He had pre-incarnate glory coming to earth. That's point number one of Christology. Jesus Christ is God and his eternal sonship. Point number two, his humiliation. Christ laying aside to some degree, though not laying aside his divine nature, nevertheless it veiled in some de- it was veiled to a large degree from those most uh, most of us who were interacting with him, speaking of humankind at that time, yet then also taking on human flesh, it says in verse 7, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So again, prior glory, and now number two, humiliation. That's part of that idea of condescension, making himself low, taking on human flesh, born in a major, and the chief feature of his humiliation, most dramatic of all, his humiliating death, shameful death on the cross. But this morning our theme is with number three, the third aspect of Christology, 
And again in Philippians 2.9, it says, Christ having finished his work, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Christ every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This third aspect is Christ's glorification, his exaltation, as it's pictured in the event of his ascension. Here Christ is magnified and he's restored to his position in heaven and indeed with greater glory if it could be said on account of what has just been what has just taken place in history through his offering of his own flesh and blood as a propitiatory sacrifice on the cross the reward of his suffering the redemption of all the elect when we think and meditate on these truths what practical effect ought it have in our lives this too is answered in the context of the Carmen Christi, and note the last two verses of our text this morning, our jumping off text. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now only, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In verses 12 and 13 of Philippians 2, we have there listed the practical outworking for Christ's church in light of the truth of who he is. And it is indeed an obedience that is a faithful service to his kingdom. Us as his ambassadors and servants of him, a faithful obedience lived out in the fear of the Lord. Even in the unsupervised present absence, even in the unsupervised absence of the apostle, the church would continue fruitful even though they didn't have Paul there in person or indeed, by extension, Christ in person. If they had written on the tables of their hearts the truth of Christ and the glory of his work, even in Christ's absence, with the presence of the Spirit using those means they would fearfully obey the Lord, and this work would always testify to Christ and His glory through them, not of their own merit, but of the sovereignty of God as the ultimate causal factor, for indeed it is God who works in you both the will and to work of His good pleasure. So a summary statement, understanding the biblical context of the exalted Christ is key to the worshipful obedience of his church. Again, understanding the biblical context of the exalted Christ is key to the worshipful obedience of his church. Christ, in his exalted state, and the meditations that that inspires, is necessary food for our soul that we might glorify him. Perhaps, though, in the, along the lines of the theme of this morning's message, most surprising to us in light of the gospel is not the fact that Christ was glorified. Time couldn't keep him encapsulated in mere flesh here on this earth. Death could certainly not keep him a prisoner, and indeed he willfully had subjected himself to the same. 
governing authorities like Imperial Rome had never had Christ under their sovereign thumb. Again, it was his voluntary condescension and submission that he suffered by their hand. And the grave could not keep our Savior entombed. Indeed, it burst its bonds and set him free, and he was ascended to the Father. We see because Christ was God that the earth, that the powers, that the authorities, that the principalities and the grave must release him. So it is not surprising that he was glorified, ascended, magnified, and exalted at the Father. After all, he is God the Son. But to our minds and for our meditation this season, perhaps what is most surprising is that although he is exalted and glorified and seated at the right hand of the Father, he yet condescends to us. He yet reveals himself to us. He yet makes himself known. And that's the theme of our message today. Here's a heading. The condescension of Christ, glorification notwithstanding. Christ made known to us, even though he is exalted, At the right hand of the Father, he yet makes himself known. Number one, we're going to go over a few ways Christ condescends to us. Number one, he condescends through his table, indeed, communion. And today is our communion Sunday, and we can appreciate, perhaps, in new light, what is available for us to appreciate and realize in when we see that its divine purpose is to make Christ and his work more tangible to our experience. Also, Christ condescends in His resurrection. We'll touch on that briefly in the Gospel. Secondly, Christ condescends through His high priestly intercession. His prayer for us continues even today perpetually before the Father. Number three, Christ condescends through His Word. He reaches us, speaks to us, reveals Himself to us, through His Holy Word. Number four, He also does so through the Holy Spirit. And fifthly, through His comings. Through Him actually coming, interacting, He condescends to us. Turn with me to the book of Luke. In the context of Luke, around the chapters of 22 through 24, is there recorded... The passion of Christ, that is his sufferings, the events leading up to the cross, the cross itself, and his subsequent resurrection. All five of these points that I just briefly laid out for you are alluded to in Luke's gospel in the framework, or its uh, five allusions are there framing Christ's work on Calvary. These five aspects of, that is to say, post-exaltation condescension are all alluded to in the events that are at the beginning, at the center, and at the climax and close of Christ's work on Calvary. So there at the apex of Christ Jesus' earthly ministry in Luke's gospel, he records a number of clues and keys and details within the record that tell us that Christ is leaving in one sense, but he will not leave us alone that is speaking personally or identifying us personally with his disciples at the time first of all let's consider Luke 22:14 through 23 
How will, we're asking the question, Christ remain with us? And in what sense will that be provided for and possible? Consider Luke twenty-two fourteen and following. And when the hour came, we read, he reclined, Christ, that is, at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Pause there and ask yourself the question, what is it in Christ's earnestness and zeal that so moved him to say, I have to, I must make it part of my pre-cross itinerary, I must schedule in a Passover meal with you, my disciples. We soon find out as we continue to read the context, verse 16, for I tell you, I will not eat it, speaking of this meal, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he, again Christ, took a cup, verse 17, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. And note this sentence, bottom of verse 19. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this, that is, partake of communion. Make this part of your liturgy, if you will. Schedule this in regularly. Place this on the doorposts of your schedule. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. When the Bible speaks of remembrance, it is more than just a sentimental fleeting memory or attachment to something. It is a substantial moment where we come to contact and come into terms with the reality of a former covenant between us and the covenanting party, let's say. And in this case, a covenant was about to be cut where Christ himself would be the sacrifice and the offering that would purchase our relationship with him. And every time, therefore, we partake in this covenant of meal, we are returning at the table of the Lord to a remembrance of the covenant terms. And it is a seal and a sign that it is significant, it is finished, and therefore in Christ's blood our salvation is assured. And therefore Christ condescends, he speaks to us, he assures us, he makes his truth known and etches it upon our experience and even our senses through his table even this morning. As we continue reading this passage or this section, this chapter of Christ's work and ministry, as the cross and the story thereby unfolds before our eyes and Christ is crucified, and as the last nail is pounded through his flesh and his last dying gasp is uttered from his precious lungs and our Savior finally gives up the ghost, we see that the saga of Christ's incarnation yet continues. And to me, this is staggering if we take it into view. Why is it, in other words, to make this point, we might ask this question, why is it, Acts tells us, that Christ yet lingered, chapter 1, verse 3, Christ yet lingered after the finished work of Calvary for 40 days 
physically appearing to his disciples in a different form of body, yet communicating with them in relational, tangible, personal ways on the road to Emmaus, showing Thomas graciously letting him feel indeed the scars on his bodily resurrected form. Why did Christ continue to preach the kingdom? Well, we see there's a mystery here in the incarnation. The incarnation yet continues. Christ has a resurrected body that in this form it it yet continues and perhaps is a clue to us that in his humiliation and in what was accomplished on Calvary, in the presence of Christ yet continuing with his disciples for 40 days and then the subsequent promise that his spirit would join them in progress, we have in the story of Christ's humility the utmost assurance that we will not be untethered from our Messiah. He has lingered 40 days to make that point known to his disciples. He offered them, as it says in Acts, many proofs of his resurrection so that they need not ever doubt the reality of who he was. He declared to them, in his own words, the kingdom of God continued to preach his message. And thus, through that experience on the hearts of the disciples, indelible, tangible pictures of Christ's ongoing direct and historical interaction in history, in time, in our experience, is there for the church to appreciate for all of time. Note the mystery and significance of the incarnation itself. It should be duly noted. Notice, for instance, again in Luke 24, verse 36. Here's one example of the point I am endeavoring to make. As they were talking about these things, namely, The disciples are in view here, no doubt befuddled, coming to terms, getting over the shell shock of the possibility of their Messiah resurrected. As they were communicating with each other about these things, it says in verse 36, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he, Christ, said to them, why are you troubled? And why do do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, they were marveling. And he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And he took a piece of broiled fish And he took it and ate before them. Christ was here, though though his work on Calvary was finished. And though rightly he would have and could have immediately ascended to the right hand of the Father, he was here yet lingering 40 days. And events like this were happening in that brief period where Christ, through his resurrection, was condescending to his church showing them by proofs of his resurrected, rejuvenated physical body that he was alive, that he was their sacrifice, that he would be with his church 
that he would not leave them alone and that the power of God sufficient to raise him from the dead was sufficient to carry them through his calling on their life to take the gospel to Judea, to Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. The condescension of Christ, glorification notwithstanding, Christ condescends through his table, through communion, and also through resurrection. Second point this morning in this overview message. The condescension of Christ through his high priestly intercession. Turn back a chapter or two, Luke 22. There's a touching moment recorded that gives us a window into this office of Christ, namely his high priesthood. Luke 22, 31 through 34 This is the moment of deep vulnerability and sin on the sleeve of Simon Peter. And it also is a moment that portrays for us the intercessory role of Jesus Christ's condescension that yet continues for all his elect to this day and forever. Listen, Simon, Simon, Jesus speaking to Peter, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and when you have turned again strengthen your brothers peter said to him lord i am ready to go with you to prison and to death verse 34 jesus said i tell you peter the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times deny three times that you know me Reading again, verse 32, But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Recall for a moment what is often termed the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ in John chapter 17. And in that section, corporately, Jesus is praying not just for Peter, But for you and I, if you are among the elect today, if you are in Christ today, if you are born again, if you are a Christian indeed, Christ was praying for you just as we have the individual account of Christ interceding for Peter here in Luke 22, 31. Thus, in both cases in the gospel, it is recorded that it is because of the prayer of Jesus Christ the beseeching of God on behalf of you with the payment of his own blood that you remain in Christ, that your sins are atoned for, that you aren't utterly cast into hell and eternal perdition and judgment and wrath and suffering forever. It's because Jesus is your intercessory advocate, that he is your representative and on the cost of his blood, makes intercession and prayers and payment for you before the throne of Almighty God. Turn with me as we will turn to a number of texts this morning. I just want to give a fuller overview of some of these themes in the book of Hebrews. This concept of Christ's intercessory role on behalf of his people is developed in glorious detail in Hebrews 7. In Hebrews 7, we have what... Jesus prayed out in the Gospels of John 17, Luke 22, for instance, here laid out in theological precision, it says in Hebrews 7, 22, this about Christ. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. 
Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he, that is again Christ, consequently Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Notice there is the glorification of Christ. Exalted in the heavens, though Christ is exalted, though he's glorified, he yet condescends to his own in intercession, always living, again, end of verse 25, to make intercession for them. Christ is on your behalf and mine, always praying as he did for Peter and for all of the sheep that God the Father had given him that they may be in him and under his blood and represented in him so that they might be in good standing, justified before the Father. Verse 27, he has Christ, that is, no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. Here's a summary statement to us. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. The condescension of Christ, glorification notwithstanding. Though Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on heaven, though in verse 26 he's described as exalted, indeed above the heavens, yet we have always before the Father on our behalf a high priest who always lives to make intercession for you and for me. Christ intercedes for us. He condescends. He makes himself known. He assures himself or his truth to us and our salvation in him by praying for us, by interceding for us, by being our representative advocate before the throne of glory. The condescension of Christ, glorification notwithstanding. Christ condescended in his lingering for 40 days post-resurrection. Christ condescends through his high priestly intercession. And thirdly, he condescends through his word. Again, we turn to Luke and a couple clues in the record that remind us of the importance of the word of God in our knowledge of Christ. Turn back again to Luke chapter 24. And here we have the account. Again, Jesus is revealing the meaning not just the revelation of himself resurrected, but the meaning of these events to his disciples. And this meaning is not outside of the context of the word of God. 
Let's read a couple sections, a couple verses here to note the importance of the Word of God in Christ's own explanation of His finished work, and then let us consider the weight and the application for us today. 24, Luke 24, 5. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27, notice how Christ shows them the meaning of what's going on here. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Skip down in the record a little ways. Verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Verse 45, let's make this our prayer. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Here was Jesus incarnate in the flesh, speaking to his disciples directly, person to person, face to face, the explanation of the events of Calvary. He did not do so outside the context of the prior word of God. Though this is Jesus Christ in the flesh, he in the context of Moses, the prophets, all the scriptures, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, used them to show who he was and what was going on displayed before them in his work on Calvary. He opened their minds indeed to understand these scriptures. Thus Christ condescended to his disciples through his inscripturated holy word. On the Emmaus Road, which this event, that's the context in which this event is recorded, these disciples were confused, and they were talking with Christ for some time. And it seems to me that Perhaps the most natural thing to do is say, hey, do you know who I am? And one of the first few sentences out of your mouth as Christ would be to draw their attention to you, the resurrected Lord. But indeed, this was not what Christ did. He instead made it his priority to open up the scriptures, indeed, as the Son of God, to reveal himself to his disciples. We may ask ourselves a question today. What would it have been like to be on that road walking next to him? We can know the answer to that question when the Holy Spirit opens our own hearts to understand the scriptures. Christ used a means that would continue once he had ascended. Christ would condescend to speak to us not in a personal face-to-face revelation so that everyone to con- that would come to Christ either had to be born then or have some kind of metaphysical, mystical experience, vision right now. No, it would happen through the effective and sufficient Word of God. The Word of God, indeed, that I am endeavoring to rightly divide before you this morning. The Word of God, indeed, that Stanley testified to was food for his soul this last year. The word of God that I trust is in your hands or on the shelf in your house and is just waiting for you to open and ask the Holy Spirit to do what he did in this moment through Christ to open your mind to understand the scriptures. And when he does, Christ 
in spite of his glorification and the place where he is right now at the right hand of the Father will condescend to you and reveal himself through this means and how glorious it is to behold that Christ has not left us without a witness to his reality even in our own mind and thinking and hearts because he has not left us without his word. We further see evidence of Christ continuing to reveal himself in his word. And just a brief note along these lines, consider the significance of the last book of the canon itself, the book of of Revelation, Revelation to John. And here as Revelation opens, this Revelation opens in chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, who is revealed indeed to John but Christ himself. And here we have in the record, in the book of Revelation, a post-exaltation. So after Christ has ascended to the Father, he provides do- there is a documentation of our bridegroom Christ joining his bride, the church, in progress, assuring through this means of condescension, explicitly and in manifold ways, that his kingdom will, be con- will continue to be built on this earth. And thus, Revelation opens with seven gracious letters from Jesus Christ for the church then and for the church today. And perhaps we'll touch on them briefly at the close of this message. Suffice it to say for now that Christ has condescended through his table, through the resurrection, through his high priestly intercession, through his holy word. And fourthly this morning, let us note that he has made himself known and clear to us through his spirit, through the Holy Spirit. Notice again in Luke 24, a promise, absolutely crucial. He says in verse 49, that is Christ to his disciples, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. And he says as we continue, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then after that moment or that teaching, he led them to the moment of his ascension. In 1 Peter, there is there in verse 10, chapter 1, the following notes that the apostle gives as to the significance of the active role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, indeed, in the revelation of all of God's holy truth. 1 Peter 1.10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Here in 1 Peter 1, we see the weight and significance of the power of the Holy Spirit to reveal. It was the Spirit of Christ our author records, that motivated, moved, and guided the pen and the exhaling of the Spirit of God through the means of the record of Scripture was how the Spirit 
declared to us the truth of Christ through the prophecies of the Old Testament. And more than that, it was the Holy Spirit that guided the authors of the New Testament. And indeed, even more, as we consider the weight of what he declares here, things that angels long to experience to know and to realize in a way that you, as a believer, uniquely can, were hidden to them, but revealed to us because of the Holy Spirit. In Luke 24, again, verse 49, when Christ says, I am sending you the promise of my Father upon you, he is speaking of that self-same Holy Spirit that would visit his people. And this indeed happened. Christ, that is to say, condescended to his church. This promise was fulfilled. And as we turn over to the book of Acts, aptly named, because the book is named for the consequences of this visit, the Holy Spirit appears in manifest form. And there in the book of Acts, we have the fulfillment of this very promise. Chapter 1 of verse Acts, verse 8 through 11, we read, But you will receive power. Again, the promise more specifically from Christ when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So recognize here, this is the moment of the ascension. And there is perhaps this listful feeling, this feeling of sinking loss even perhaps for many as they look into the sky and they see, reduced to a speck and then to nothing, their Messiah disappear into glory but this was not a disappearance of himself indeed ultimately speaking because a promise was on the horizon i go but i send another indeed god the holy spirit you'll receive power when the holy spirit has come upon you so thus christ condescends to us through the spirit and we see this taking a foothold in the experience of the church in dramatic and astonishing ways in the next chapter. Here it is fulfilled in Acts 2, 1 through 4. We have this record. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered in one place. This is the same group that Christ promised would receive the Spirit. Verse 2, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Thus, in the record, the gospel, and the acts subsequent to the gospel, we see that Christ made good on His promise and it was recorded manifestly and dramatically fulfilled in the book of Acts. Not just this moment, this supernatural moment when the Spirit arrived, but the supernatural effects of this imbuing power. This group went on to, in the words of society around them, turn the world upside down, though just a handful, unimpressive by any other measure. 
They went out through the Spirit. Through Christ's means of condescending, bringing His power to them by the third person of the Godhead to bring the kingdom of God to the next benchmark of accomplishment that had been prophesied and planned beforehand in the eternal mind of God. And there they were, preaching Jesus Christ and Him crucified, salvation for sinners from Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And now we ourselves are their heirs to millennia later, worshiping that same Jesus Christ today. First Sunday of 2015 in Cross Lake, Minnesota. This is because Christ, though glorified, still reaches down into our experience as it were. That God is with us. That the Emmanuel reality of the incarnation is still ours in part because of the Holy Spirit promised to his disciples and to you and me if you are in Christ today. Finally, number five condescension of Christ, glorification notwithstanding, Christ condescends to us through his comings. I say comings, plural, because there's more than one. When we think of the coming of Jesus Christ, we're most often associated, at least with the modern mind, modern Christian mind most likely associates the coming of the Lord with the second coming of Christ, which is legitimate, and will absolutely happen in God's perfect and as known to man unknown time. We do not know when that day or hour is, but it will certainly arrive. But between the here and the here and now and the coming of Christ, there are comings of Christ that are prophesied in Scripture. Indeed, there is an assurance that Christ will be interactive in history in the experience of His church to restore, to fulfill, to satisfy, to establish, to sustain, to secure, and to ultimately usher in the end times or eschatological purposes of all history to the glory of God forever. Turn over with me to the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, Christ promises, assures the churches through this message to John that he is alive and well and interactive In his comings, it says in Revelation 2, verses 4 through 7, in response, a letter to the church in Ephesus, but I have this against you, Christ says, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. A sobering and chilling warning, to be sure. But for those who take refuge in the purity of Christ's word, this is a very assuring doctrine as well. That is to say, lest the church be utterly shipwrecked by the latest you know, idea to come along, to be popularized through man-centered works of literature and self-help books and easy-to-believe-and-follow, new gospel, cutting-edge, pablum, market-driven, self-seeking, selfish pablum that we so often see you know, strewn about the shelves 
of these apostate places of business and ill repute and filthy lucre we often call Christian bookstores. I don't have any strong feelings about it. But in case we ever are worried, in case we're ever worried that all this little bit of compromise and poison and bits and pieces of man-made religion and self-serving ends and all of this stuff that gets attached to the purity of the gospel and would dilute it, corrode it, and utterly shipwreck the church, Christ promises that before that will happen, before postmodernism destroys his bride, he will come in judgment and remove the false lampstands. There are churches who claim the name of Christ that will be shown not to be the case in the course of history and in our day when the Lord Jesus Christ comes and through whatever means his sovereign prerogative is pleased to use will remove their lampstand. Yes, we must be fearful to hold on to the purity of the gospel as best as we possibly can, to stay close to the mooring of our hope and salvation. But we also can be rest assured that if we do that, that is, if we fear the Lord, we will not be shipwrecked, we will not be utterly overtaken, and a remnant yet this day will be preserved. Why? Because Christ still condescends in his comings to sustain his church and to bring judgment and pruning when and where necessary. Revelation chapter 2. We continue to read the letter to the second church. This is the church to Smyrna in verses uh, 16 and 17, perhaps the third. Verses 16 and 17, Therefore repent, Christ says, If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. We continue to read chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up again, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who uh, have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white. For they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It goes on like this, verses 11 through 13. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And so you see, in these letters of assurance, and yes, warning where necessary, but also in the promise that Christ will secure the borders and the boundaries, the fences of his sheepfold, we have the promise that he will condescend to us in comings in the interim time, between now and his ultimate coming, the second coming of Christ, the consummation of history, we have this assurance that he will come, he will prune, and he will sustain. He will guard and he will protect. He will root out and he will plant as needed his church for his glory. And no man and no devil in hell 
will be able to unseat the purposes of his kingdom advancement through his confessing bride. And finally, this morning, let us consider in Revelation chapter 21, his consummate coming, his ultimate coming, if you will. And this is the moment where Christ, in spite of where he stands today or sits today at the right hand of the Father glorified, will yet condescend. And the picture here is that there is coming a time where the clock of history will finally meet its alarm, a clock that God has set and perfectly calibrated to his sovereign decree. And when this happens, Christ will return. Notice the context and the environment that we will welcome on that day. Verse 22 of Revelation 21, I saw no temple in that city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no light there. There will be no night there, excuse me. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Verse 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits, fruit uh, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. As we continue to read, we have these phrases of assurance as Christ speaks to John in his glorious revelation, verse 7, Behold, I am coming soon. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon. It's repeated refrain. It's a theme in this book. Surely I am coming soon, he says. Verse 20, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. And thus concludes the last sentence in the canon, as it were, with the assurance that Christ means for us to not just survive, but to thrive as witness and testimonies to him is the grace that will give us endurance from the time, between the time of his work on Calvary and Ascension to his promised return for his spotless bride made so by his precious holy blood. Let us close this morning with a transition to communion today. Back in Luke 24, the final reference this morning, there was some moments of awakening that we've already been touching on, but there's one more detail in the record that I find insightful. When the disciples who were on the road to Emmaus found themselves awakened to the fact that Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, was resurrected and revealing them himself and bodily to them now, miraculously so, as testimony to the power of God forever securing their redemption. In Luke 24, 30, it says, 
when he was at table with them, this is Jesus with the disciples that he had just been talking to on the road to Emmaus. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Notice what happened, verse 31. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. It was at this moment when the bread was broken and passed to them that their eyes were opened. They recognized and realized who Christ was. When we see the purpose of communion laid out in Scripture, it should and can and will by the Spirit's good pleasure to use it have the same effect on us today. When the bread is broken, when the cup is to our lips. God's intent is that we would remember and proclaim with a realization deeper as a result of our obedience in this covenant feast today than what we would otherwise know. These went on from there saying, verse 34, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Verse 35, then they told what had happened on the road, how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's transition in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that for each of us here today that confess faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that you would be made known to us in the breaking of the bread. I pray that we would be encouraged, strengthened, challenged by today's word that promises us by these five certainties we've covered today, and there are more in Scripture, that you have not left us without sufficient and effective means to testify to you, to glorify you, to stand strong in our faith in Christ, and to grow each day in our understanding of the implications of the finished work of Calvary. I pray for each of us that partake of communion today that these thoughts would be signed and sealed in our heart and that you might usher us into this new year with a zeal much like your disciples had in Acts to share with others the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.